This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today's special guest is Jennifer Chacon, who is actually one of UC Berkeley School of Law's newest law professors, focusing primarily on immigration, constitutional law, and criminal law and procedure. It's a pleasure to have you on. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. You said that you're starting in September with classes. Excited for that? Yeah, so uh, my colleagues have already started teaching. Um, they're up and running, and I will I will be doing administrative work and research this semester, starting my teaching in January. So looking forward to that. Great, great. I know a lot of your focus is on U.S. immigration enforcement and also our reliance on the criminal justice system as a tool for managing migration. So I, I want to get into that discussion and learn more about that. And particularly, how has this increasingly harsh form of policing of immigrants developed over time? Do, do we have any place that we can point our finger to <laughs> how this has ramped up over time? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, and so in some ways, um, I think there's a temptation to say, all of this is new, it's worse than it's ever been, right? That's, I think, and in some ways we can point to some specific uh, developments in law that have made the situation probably more uh, stringent than it has been in a while. Um, so one of the markers that people often look to in time um, is the mid-1990s when you had both a lot of legislation at the federal level aimed at um, increasing the severity of punishment in the criminal legal system, so the crime bill. And then you also simultaneously, um, a series of laws, Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, and also uh, the Welfare Reform Act, um, which was geared uh, in part at, at non-citizens. Um, all of those laws uh, in the mid-1990s made it harder to be a non-citizen in the United States, made it much more easy uh, for the U.S. government to remove people from the United States, including longtime lawful permanent residents, um, including uh, people who are here on non-immigrant visas and including long-term residents who were without authorization. All of those people sort of uh, fell into buckets where it was much easier to detain them, remove them, um, and also to bar them um, from returning for longer periods of time and sometimes uh, forever. So that sort of series of laws, I think, is where we often look when we think about how did we get to this point. Um, those are the laws that make it really easy for the government to remove people and, in fact, make it hard for them not to in some ways. Um, it removes discretion from immigration judges to take into account equities in a lot of these cases. Uh, you have a criminal conviction of certain kinds. It's irrelevant to the court that you've lived here for most of your life. It's irrelevant to the court. It has to be under the law as it's written. So that kind of severity um, is really a product of those mid-90s laws. Um, and that gets amped up after September 11th because the Department of Homeland Security becomes the site for enforcement and Congress funds it very well. So you see a lot of interior enforcement, um, a lot of resources dedicated to interior enforcement, and you have laws that make it very easy to target a broad range of people for removal and to detention and to lifetime bars in ways that we hadn't seen. So that would be the sort of if we were looking for the kind of the new <laughs> picture. Part. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think you know, you know <laughs> and I, and we all know that, that it's it's also not new to think about sort of severity in, in U.S. immigration law when it comes to immigrants. 
And there is a long history um, in this country of, of kind of talking out of two sides of the mouth, one saying, we're a welcoming nation, we're a nation of immigrants, and on the other hand, um, using immigrants and immigration as a scapegoat for other problems. Um, and, and that has sort of been the history of the United States. So we talk about sort of the U.S. as being free um, and open to migrants, but we could see the ways in which state migration laws were used to police uh, free Black people. Uh, pre-Civil War era, we could see the way that it was used to police poor people uh, trying to cross state lines. We could see the way that uh, external borders were deployed against indigenous nations. We've long had sort of, since our inception, uh, we've had a series of sort of repressive laws aimed at governing the movement of some people, um, while simultaneously sort of retaining this notion of being welcoming um, with regard to other people. Um, and that has not changed, right? And in some ways, what we're seeing in the post-90s era is, is continuous of that. So we can look to the mid-90s laws. I think that's a really important place to have a conversation um, and a conversation about law reform. Um, but it's also useful to recognize the way in which this fits into a broader historical pattern and is not new, at least not completely new. Right. And you talk about reform um, and focusing on these 1990s laws. Is there any policy in particular from that era that we can look to and maybe there can be any revisions? Yeah, so I think it's interesting to think about those laws in particular because uh, they were passed um, in, in sort of a period, a national security fervor in response to, interestingly, the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City. And you might remember that that bombing was not done by an immigrant, right? Yeah, the bombing, the responsibility for that bombing was Timothy McVeigh, um, a white nationalist. Um, but the response that Congress could muster was one that focused very much on immigrants um, and on uh, sort of increasing um, policing borders and increasing the, the interior. And so, um, so it was a sort of a completely um, inapposite response to the problem, and it was very harsh. Uh, so when we think about that, what was what was fascinating was the those bills got rushed through. They were sort of huge pieces of legislation um, with lots of complex details um, that didn't get a lot of uh, focused attention um, in Congress. They were signed very quickly by Bill Clinton. And almost immediately, there was a real wave of opposition from organizers and activists in community and communities that were going to be affected, um, from immigration lawyers um, and immigrants' rights advocates, all of whom said, we just need to fix this. And Clinton, when he signed it, um, actually said, you know, there's stuff in here I don't like, but I'm going to sign it because a lot of it's important, um, and so we'll fix it later. So there was this sense um, when, when the 96 laws were passed that, that it was like done in haste, but there would be sort of fixing um, at leisure, and the fixing never happened. So you see this big push, the Fix 96 campaign, and, and that generates momentum, and it seems like something might happen, particularly in the early days of the Bush administration, as they're sort of hashing out the possible uh, possible immigration deal with Mexico, um, like there's some focus on sort of the low hanging fruit, fixing some of the easy problems um, of the 96 laws. And then September 11th happens. The political uh, momentum swings the other way and there's just no uh, political momentum to fix uh, 96. And so we then have this rushed law that, you know, that even <laughs> the signatory of the law admits was deeply flawed, that just gets becomes embedded in stone. Um, and so there are lots of things you could think about fixing in that law. The mandatory detention provisions that broadly overuse immigration detention, taking people out of communities unnecessarily every day, 
um, and putting them in situations of indefinite detention pending their proceedings. A lot of those shouldn't be there and could be fixed. The big targets, um, the sort of really robust aggravated felony definition, which sweeps into account a whole lot of conduct, a lot of it not aggravated, a lot of it not felonies, but that makes people who are aggravated felons under the label subject to mandatory removal, mandatory detention during proceedings, um, and then a lifetime bar. That could be revisited. Um, harsh laws that make it really difficult for people who are out of status to regularize their status. So the 10-year bar, if you've been present without authorization in the country for more than a year and you're trying to regularize your status, often you can't because you have to leave the country in order to process your visa. And in leaving the country because of your undocumented status for more than a year, you're subject to a 10-year bar under the law. There's been huge pressure to change that uh, because it, it just puts an unnecessary roadblock in the path of somebody who has family or an employment relationship that should allow them to remain. They can't. So there are lots of low-hanging fruit, lots of little things in the 96 laws that could be fixed. They're retroactive. Um, so conduct or criminal convictions that did not make you removable at the time that you did them under the 96 laws are now removable, right? So there's all kinds of ways this is hugely problematic and lots of things that could be fixed um, if there were momentum to do so. And a lot of those fixes are often part of the big conversation that people are having about quote unquote comprehensive immigration reform. So there's an effort to try to weave those things in or weave in uh, piece things that will help to fix um, some of the ill effects of those laws. But as we've seen time and time again, it's difficult to get a comprehensive bill on immigration uh, through Congress. Yes, absolutely. And that was a, a great breakdown of what we can do on a congressional level, on a everyday citizen level, right? Take it to the people, not necessarily legislative, but uh, socially, culturally, politically. In that way, what can we do to help advance this narrative and make it more welcoming for immigrants who, who come to the United States? Yeah, so a, a lot of my work focuses on the, <laughs> the relentlessly oh, negative, okay. right, in some ways. So <laughs> I, oh. I, I'm focused on the bad laws. I'm focused <laughs> on thinking about how you fix the bad laws. And also uh, thinking about the ways that courts um, are sort of complicit in generating the cultural narrative that we have around immigration, right? So I, <laughs> I'm really interested in the way that the courts buy into, embrace, and in some ways uh, sort of further along um, depictions of immigrants as threatening, as dangerous, as national security risks, et cetera. So I think courts have really been um, a big part of the story, not that they generate the narrative, but that they yeah. perpetuate the narrative um, in, in important ways. So, so they are part of the problem. So we have a legal regime that treats all migrants as criminal and dehumanizes them. We have uh, a system of courts that don't recognize uh, that dehumanization and in fact often furthers it uh, through their own sort of racial blind spots. And so that's what the focus of a lot of my work is. And so I'm often thinking about, well, how do you get courts to change or how do you get Congress to change the law? But I think you're right that a lot of the forward momentum that we've seen, particularly over the past decade, two decades, two and a half decades, hasn't been um, in Congress and it hasn't been in the courts, um, which have kind of persisted in these dehumanizing um, narratives and practices. Um, the momentum that we've seen really has been at the local level, um, you know, at the grassroots level, efforts to really seize the 
narrative and reframe it. So um, one example that, I, that really stands out in my mind is sort of thinking about the way in which um, for decades now, presidents from both parties um, have sort of drawn distinctions between good immigrants and bad immigrants, immigrants who commit crimes and everybody else, right? And you sort of see this dichotomous treatment. We see that sort of dichotomous treatment when we think about deferred action for childhood arrivals, right? Because it, it sort of identifies people who are um, good and therefore worthy of protection, um, but then it takes off the table protection for people who might have contact with the criminal legal system, for example. Uh, so there's this kind of, there good people, there's bad people, um, and, and that sort of carries through in the law. You can think about uh, President Obama's announcement of the Deferred Action for Parents program that never went into effect in November, and he talked about how it, um, we were going to protect uh, families, not felons, right? And that, again, is the good, bad, right? The family, the felon, with uh, the sort of losing sight of the fact that uh, people who commit felonies have families um, and that, that, you know, individual lives are complicated. But so this sort of puts people into these two buckets. And I think one of the interesting things that we've seen in recent years is real pushback on that, that is sort of dovetailed with what we've seen uh, in a lot of the activism in the Black Lives Matter movement, kind of contesting the validity and legitimacy of the criminal legal system and saying, actually, that's not doing a very good job about sorting good people and bad people. What it's doing is a very good job about sort of imposing racialized enforcement disproportionately on some people. And if that's going to be our mechanism, we're sorting out who's the good immigrant and the bad immigrant, those same racial effects are going to be imported into the way that we uh, that we enforce immigration law. And in fact, that's what we've seen, right? So we see overrepresentation of lawful permanent residents who are Black in the removal system. We see, you know, massive dis uh, disproportionality with regard to Latinos because the same systems are sort of working together to produce predictable uh, racial effects. Um, and so this critique, I think, has been really important in saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, like maybe we shouldn't be so <laughs> so quick to buy into the notion that these 90s messages about crime and criminality should continue to drive the way we think about people. Um, and instead, we need to take uh, an approach that is more inclusive um, and that is more uh, holistic um, and that really takes a look at sort of the deep ties that people have in community. Um, and recognizes and values those times. And I think some of that rhetoric really helped drive a lot of the sanctuary pushback that we saw um, really starting in the Obama era and moving into the Trump era, where localities said, we're not interested in participating in aggressive policing of communities of people who are here and have been here for a really long time. Um, we're interested in trying to create some sense of security and safety for people who are here and have been here for a really long time. We're interested in working to build that for ourselves and for our communities regardless of what the federal prerogatives might be. Wow. Uh, you are definitely tackling quite a big issue in terms of implicit bias uh, within the court system that runs as deep as the history of the United States. And I, w while you was talking, I was just wondering, since you spend a lot of time in this area, have you found or come to a conclusion, not a conclusion, but an understanding of where does this implicit bias stem from, this natural sort of push towards maybe more xenophobic policies. And as time goes on, it seems like it becomes more and more stringent and, and actually becomes harsher over time, where you would think that over time, with more information, more connections to different uh, backgrounds, cultures, understandings of different people, that 
that would relax over time because you have a better understanding of the people that you are passing laws, you know, that that affects. So where does that stem from and how can we help combat it? I know that's a, a big, big idea, but <laughs> just in general. <laughs> so uh, uh, this is asking me to solve all the problems. And I right, can't. yeah, no. <laughs> no, just first but thoughts I, that come to mind. I yeah. do have, you know, I, I guess I have some, you know, some thoughts on sort of where some of the pressure points are and how yeah. we might focus on them and, and hope to change the narrative. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, you sort of pointed to the implicit bias, and I would add explicit bias, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> that manifests sure. um, itself in law and policy um, as against um, immigrants and people of color. Um, and so we could say, well, you know, how do we sort of unearth, how do we humanize, how do we, uh, how do we sort of make that better? And I think, you know, in some ways that is better right? There have been improvements, um, you know, over time. We seem to be moving in some sort of a, a right direction, just incredibly slowly right, um, and, yeah. and not as uh, not as uniformly as we think we are. Um, but I think what, what happens is, you know, and, and various scholars have written about this, um, Rita Siegel most notably, sort of the, the system shifts and changes, um, you know, and Derek Bell, I think, in, in uh, sort of elaborating his critical race theory, Kind of foundational critical race theory work talks mm-hmm. about the ways that systems sort of transform. So you you know you desegregate schools, but then you you know we see the sort of pattern of resegregation, right? Um, and then it's all it's all colorblind now, right? It's class driven. It's driven by district lines. It's driven by these sort of purportedly objectively neutral things that are in fact heavily sort of rooted in the nation's racial history, like where district lines are, who lives where, right? All of those things are influenced by histories of racism, but you can't uh, sort of uh, name you know the in the in the current moment uh, they look neutral right they don't they don't define themselves with regard to race they are just built on <laughs> histories that have been defined with regard yeah. to race right so so then they become very difficult to attack through the um, the kinds of legal mechanisms that we have for dealing with uh, things because the legal mechanisms we have look for things like evidence of explicit bias you know are they actually saying in the law that uh, that you know whites only here, right? No, they're not saying that anymore. But our legal tools are looking for that sort of language, right? Um, so there's a way in which our legal tools are not very well equipped to fight um, the battles that we have. And I think immigration law is a really good example of that, right? Because what we do is we say, well, they're not citizens, right? So they don't have the same kind of rights that citizens have. Um, so they're sort of utterly disposable in many ways in terms of the rights, particularly people who have not been kind of formally entered the country, right? Those are people that our constitutional law says uh, aren't really owed anything at all. Um, and so uh, so you're protected if you're here physically, um, but you're less protected if you're not a citizen than if you are. Um, and if you're outside the country, um, whether really or as a legal fiction, outside the country, right? And that could include being detained in places like Guantanamo um, or held in the border in the Mexican, uh, in the migrant protection program, right, held on the Mexican side of the border outside of the country. If you're there, our constitution really does not protect you in the way the courts have interpreted it. And so we say, well, that's fine because you're not here and you're not a citizen. And so that's easy. Right. And yet we can see that all of those decisions are themselves sort of premised on uh, a colonial uh, and racist past. Right. That's why we have borders the way we have them. That's why we have particular nations enforcing borders against particular people the way they do. That's why some people have access to passports and some don't. 
informed, right? Those patterns are historically informed by the same um, sort of racial problems, um, but they look neutral. There's citizens here and they're protected by certain rights. There's non-citizens there. If you're here in the country and you're not authorized, uh, that's just too bad for you, right? <laughs> the fact that you have family, the fact that you work here, the fact that you've been here 25 years, those things don't matter in the same way, right? Because formally you're not a citizen. And the fact that this continues to play out in ways that disproportionately impact people of some races, well, that's just coincidence, right? <laughs> Random, <laughs> sure. um, right? We don't, yeah. we don't, we can't see the race there, right? Because it's really just about nationality and citizenship, and really just enforcing a neutral set of immigration laws. And I think it's really important to sort of push back on that notion of neutrality. They're not neutral; um, they are historically contingent. Um, they look the way they do precisely because some groups were being defined as, as excluded. We have laws that criminalize unauthorized migration because racist senators and, and uh, representatives in the House of Representatives wanted to keep Mexicans under control in the 1920s. We still have those laws on the book today, and they still serve to control the same populations, right? So these are not neutral laws, although they don't say target Mexicans. Um, they work to target Mexicans just as they were designed to do, uh, but we don't have the sort of the legal tools that we have are almost deliberately um, blind to um, those effects. So a couple of days ago, there was a district court uh, a judge who uh, was uh, confronted with a legal challenge to the laws that criminalized unauthorized migration and found them to be unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause. Found them found that there is this deeply racist history of these laws and that they continue to operate in deeply racist ways. Um, so it has discriminatory purpose and it has discriminatory impact as the law requires. It's really difficult to make that showing, but at least one district court judge was swayed by the evidence um, that these laws are in fact racist and continue to operate in racist ways, so violate equal protection. Um, that ruling will be challenged by the Biden administration. Um, they will appeal it. Um, and this, I think, goes to the sort of bipartisanship of this effort, right? They will, they will stand up. Uh, for these uh, laws that were passed in the eugenics era of the 1920s by senators and congressmen who made explicitly racist statements about Mexicans. They will go to the mat to defend those laws because those are the neutral legal regimes that maintain the immigration system that we have. Um, and it, and, and that, you know, that's just uh, how these things have played out. So it's really important for us to always be clear-eyed about the histories that brought us to where we are. Um, and to be clear that, you know, that those in power uh, are, are pretty reluctant to give up the control um, that those laws continue to give them, even though they know um, their deeply racist histories and the problematic uh, contemporary manifestations of them. Right. I mean, it's very important to know that these laws don't operate in a vacuum, right? It has historical precedence, right? <laughs> it comes from a foundation before us and it continues. So um, I think that's always important to keep in mind. Now, if people are interested to learn more uh, about the work that you do, is there any resources that you can point them to to learn more about what we talked about today or maybe some events that's happening at Berkeley that's involved with this? Uh, where can people go? Sure. So um, if you're if you want sort of nuts and bolts of immigration law in a really complicated way, I'm a co-author on a textbook called Immigration Law and Social Justice. My co-authors are 
Kevin Johnson at UC Davis and Bill King at the University of San Francisco. That book really tries to sort of pull together uh, not only sort of the nuts and bolts of how immigration law operates, important constitutional and statutory questions, administrative law questions, um, but also thinking about sort of how this is structured in ways that um, have uh, racial implications about sort of the injustice that it generates and about ways to sort of be forward thinking. So that's the sort of nuts and bolts. Um, and then I've written a, a lot of different stuff that you can find on my website effortly. Um, there'll be links to some of my articles that really explore this nexus of criminal and immigration law. Um, and so that's that, that's sort of the, uh, the short version. Yeah, it's um, a good starting um, point. <laughs> Yeah. Um, if you want to read a bit more great absolutely well thank you so much jennifer for coming on we appreciate the work you do and good luck at berkeley thank you so much it was really fun follow immigration nerds on twitter at imm nerds and erickson immigration group on linkedin to join in the conversation i'm ian Gaines. see you next week